topics that may be triggering. Listener's discretion is advised. If you are a student, faculty, or staff who is looking for support after listening to this podcast, you have access to free services via North Carolina State Counseling Center. Please let us know if we can help you make connections. Views expressed by individuals in this podcast are their own. Do not necessarily represent the views held by African American Culture Center, the Office for Institutional Equity and Diversity, or North Carolina State University. to another episode of For Your Soul Podcast. All right, everybody. What's good with y'all? Hope y'all are having a happy, happy, amazing day. Uh, welcome to another episode of the For Your Soul Podcast. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Hannah. Hannah, how you feeling today? I am doing amazing today. Thank you for asking. I'm doing amazing as well, especially amazing to be in your presence today. Thank you. And amongst the presence of some amazing students um, here, would you talk a little bit about the episode we got going on today, Hannah? Of course. So um, this episode is exploring the African diaspora. Um, as we all know, if you are black and if you are in America, you are part of the African diaspora. Um, it just is how recent of a wave are you part of the African diaspora? Um, and in looking at the African diaspora in this podcast, we're going to look at it through the framework of the third culture kid. Um, the third culture kid or individual um, is a person who has spent a significant part of his or her developmental years, so the ages of 0 to 18, outside of the parent's culture. This term was coined by Ruth Unseen in the 1950s, who used, to, who used it to describe the children of American citizens working and living abroad. Um, I've always felt that this framework could be applied to immigrant, immigrant kids who live in the United States. Um, this episode is also going to highlight that this framework also allows for a fourth culture, the collegiate culture as it relates to the three cultures that are already being navigated. Um, and I would like for our guests um, to introduce themselves at this time. Um, so starting from Rancy to Nyambi, am I pronouncing it correctly? Nyambi. Nyambi, okay. Um, and then Helen, go ahead and introduce yourselves, your names, uh, pronouns, year, and major, please. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Rancy. Um, I'm a junior here at NC State. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Oh, yes. I'm business administration major with concentration finance. Hey, y'all. My name is Nyambe, and I use she, her, her, hers pronouns. Um, I'm a senior here at NC State, and I'm majoring in sustainable materials and technology with a minor in environmental science. A word? <laughs> yes. A whole word. Yes. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. My name is Helen. I am a fifth-year PhD student in the School of Psychology program at NC State. I use she, her, her pronouns. Thank you so much to all of these amazing women who said yes to coming to our um, podcast. And I would like for um, 
you guys to just give us a background on yours or your parents' migration stories, if you would. Um, specifically, which country and what years? Okay, I can start. Um, so, okay, my name's Rancy. Both of my parents are from Haiti. Um, they actually moved here pretty young. Um, I think my dad was maybe close to like 12 when his family um, immigrated to America and my mom was 16. So they've been here for a pretty long time. They both um, immigrated to New York. That's where they met. So my dad um, and his family are from Sierra Leone, West Africa. And I believe he came here, I wanna say, um, when he was 21, but it was definitely in his early 20s. So he's been here for at least half of his life so far. And my mom, she's from North Carolina. So I was actually born in Nigeria. Um, my parents first moved to the US, so they lived in Boston um, after giving birth to me. So they left me in Nigeria with my three other siblings and came to America kind of to establish themselves and then five years after they came to the U.S., we came. Um, so I moved to Boston in 2001 when I was six years old. Alrighty, so thank you so much for that background. Um, and my second question, it's a bit of a mouthful, so if you need me to repeat any bit of it, um, don't hesitate. Um, NC State is a college in a southern state, North Carolina, with a rich African-American culture and history, as many southern states have. Um, being from the most recent wave of the African diaspora, how has being here in this state informed your relationship to not only this country, but to blackness as well? If you want me to reframe it, re-ask it. Um, um, yeah, if you could, like, that's a, that's a good question. Um, if you could, I guess, ask again in another way, that'd be helpful. Yeah, um, so I guess really what I'm asking is, is that when you are in Southern states, there is a hard-fought legacy of African-American culture and history for it to not only exist as it does, but to be respected and recognized. And how has that um, helped your interactions in this country um, as someone from the diaspora, um, like very recent wave of the diaspora? Um, because for most of us, um, myself included, because my uh, parents are um, immigrants as well, for most of us, that means that we don't have generations worth of history in this country. Um, but not only that, there's a specific type of black history here. So how has that informed your relationship with blackness as well? I think for me, that's one of the things that I actually really have struggled with and I am still struggling with is really feeling like where is my place in the African-American history in the U.S., right? So really thinking more. So I immigrated here from Nigeria. And so I always feel out of place when we're talking about, you know, slavery or segregation or things that I feel like I can't really speak on because my myself and my immediate family, my extended family doesn't necessarily experience it. So moving down south was really hard for me because I then got kind of smacked down into where it all kind of began, right? So a lot of, like you were just saying, Anna, a lot of history is about 
just what happened specifically in North Carolina. And I find myself being so ignorant to it and really just feeling like being here has taught me so much about reading about specific things that have happened, initiatives that occurred, even knowing why buildings were named certain buildings. And I oftentimes feel out of place. Like I'll go to events and I'm like, anxious because I'm like, I'm African, I'm African. Like I, I, I coined that, I told myself that. And I'm struggling to feel like I'm part of African-American history because I don't really know my place. Like, can I relate to this? Can I share the same struggles? Can I speak on these struggles? Because I feel like it's, it's not my place or it's not my right to speak on something that I necessarily didn't experience directly or my, my ancestors or, you know, my grandparents or great grandparents didn't experience that. So it's always something that I have to be very intentional about when I speak of it and acknowledging that I can't speak from this place of position because I don't necessarily have the full grasp of it, but I still share that, you know, history with them because at the end of the day, you know, we're all, like you said, African diaspora. So it's still something I'm battling with, still something I'm still trying to find my place and figure out. And then like the clash sometimes of like, no, I'm not African-American, I'm African. And then sometimes like, no, I'm African-American. So it's even that identity crisis is still something that I'm still trying to figure out now. And I'm, I've been here for 20 years. I completely agree with you, Helen. Um, just the identity crisis of being, of identifying who you are is really something I've also struggled with. Both my parents are from Haiti. Um, I don't consider myself African-American. I never have. I don't know if I ever will, even though I know that the people who live in Haiti had to come from somewhere, right? Um, I consider myself black. And living um, living in North Carolina, because my family did move from New York when I was pretty young, um, it's just understanding the history of it is something I have struggled with. I've always been in schools where I'm still one of the minorities um, even though we are in a southern state where there are a lot of black people here, I still went to a school that had mostly white people. Um, and understanding who I was in those situations was even harder because um, the slavery issue was something that I think was discussed even less because they didn't want to bring up that little bit of divide that was still there um, in those schools to you know exasperate the connections that we already had. Um, I totally understand what you're talking about. I feel the same way. I mean, I feel rancy, uh, um, but rancy, I feel like um, for you, it, it's even more, I guess, a little bit more complicated because even that first term African, you know, you're part of the African diaspora intellectually, but for you, does it cause some balk where you're like, actually, no, I'm Caribbean? Yeah, it, exactly that. And that way, I do know that people from Haiti came from somewhere in Africa. I don't know where. Mm -hmm. I don't know my background, except for the fact that my grandparents lived in Haiti. My great-grandma was in Haiti. I only met her once before she died. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I... I don't really know my own family history, and mm -hmm. I don't know if I ever will. The only way to tell nowadays where I could maybe possibly, like, where my origin comes from is maybe doing one of those DNA tests, which mm -hmm. I've been hesitant about, because if I do that... That means I really have to acknowledge the fact that maybe being Caribbean really means that I'm just African. Mm. And Nayambe, for you, it's going to be a bit more, um, because you are both, par one parent is from the African diaspora and one parent is African-American. How has that, um, navigating that, 
been for you, especially because you said your mom is from North Carolina? Sure. Um, I don't know. I feel like I always kind of have to go out of my way to kind of familiarize myself with history, like with black history, African history, just because it's not really something that's taught in schools that much. It's mostly just like, oh, slavery, Jim Crow, and that's kind of the end of it. Um, But I feel like I've never really been in a class until I got to college where um, I was really given like an in-depth view of like what truly was going on. So um, I definitely feel like it's always just kind of a battle like with people who are trying to erase our history and me just reminding myself like, oh no, like this is still relevant. Um, And this is important, like trying to erase, like just because something bad happened, you don't have to erase it. Like we have to, um, like we have to face it and we just have to kind of keep it relevant. So I guess that's my take on this. Mm -hmm. And this question is going to be, to me, the most interesting one in this podcast. how do you guys handle the where are you from question? I don't. You don't? I, I, I kind of ignore it sometimes. Uh, most of the time, actually. When it comes to thinking about where I'm from, I'll just be like, yeah, my parents are from Haiti. I'm from America. And they, they flip-flop between saying I'm Haitian and American, depending on how mad they are at <laughs> me. Um, but acknowledging anything further than that is just not something I do. Mm. Um, my first oh I'm sorry no you're fine <laughs> I think my first go-to is to say I'm Nigerian I grew up in Boston like that's always what I say to people or sometimes I'll tell people I'm Nigerian and then they'll say something ignorant along the lines of oh you speak really really good English and like yeah I grew up in Boston you know and I've been here since I was six but I'm still Nigerian mm-hmm. so it's always it's always fun to get people's reactions I think it always just kind of depends on who's asking. Like, if it's someone um, that's African, I can kind of, and they hear my name. Most of the time, it's when someone hears my name, it's, oh, like, where are you from? Um, And just depending on who it is asking that, I'll say, oh, like, my family um, is from West Africa. Or um, if it's someone that I don't perceive to be African, I'll just say, oh, I'm from here. I'm from North Carolina. Mm. Okay. Um. So now we're moving more into the, um, now that we've gotten the background on the African diaspora part, we're moving to the collegiate part. Um, So what were the major culture shocks you experienced coming from your home to living on campus? And uh, Helen, you can talk about your undergrad experience um, if you'd like. I could start. Yeah. So let's see, I came to NC State 2019. Um, and of course, like I mentioned, I've always grown up in white schools, so the expectation of deciding between HBCU and a PWI, really just depending on who was giving me more money. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I ended up at NC State. Um, but coming here, I actually had the opportunity to attend the multicultural symposium that NC State was hosting. I didn't realize this at the time, but that was a really, really rare chance. Um, I was not going to get it again. Um, and I was lucky enough to decide, yeah, sure, I get to come in and move early. That sounds like a good opportunity um, to steal the best bed from my roommate before <laughs> <laughs> she got the chance. So when I came to Multicultural Symposium, it was really interesting being surrounded by all these black people. It's almost like being at an HBCU without actually being at an HBCU. We're all at NC State. 
And that three days, those three days were really amazing, just meeting students, meeting some lifelong friends. I still talk to some of those people I met during symposium. But the real interesting thing was when I left symposium, coming to NC State for the first time and being surrounded by all these black people, the minute I stepped outside for like the first big party at NC State, I was like, wow, there's no one like me here. Um, all the people from symposium were gone. All it was just a sea of white people, which is like I was, I'm used to being around a whole bunch of white people, but I think that that shock from being only around black people and a couple like maybe Asian, it was multicultural, so there was mm-hmm. a couple of Latinos and stuff there. Um, it was just a real shock. Um, and then I eventually walking around, I met like a couple people from symposium. They were like as shocked as I was, and like we got to stick together because we're the only ones here, you know? It was kind of crazy. Um, but going to symposium was just a really great opportunity. And um, so were there any, like, living experiences, like, actually in the dorms, like those kinds of cultural shocks? Yeah, there really were. Um, you know that not everyone's raised like you are. Um, you really <laughs> learned that in college. <laughs> <laughs> I can echo that definitely. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so I also went to a predominantly white institution in Massachusetts. I went to UMass Amherst. And I think one of the big things for me um was I grew up in Boston and I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood and just went to a diverse school but I was always like the only African, right? So I was around black people all the time and Asians and Hispanics, but I was always the only African. And so when I went to college, then I started meeting other Africans. And so that was really exciting because I'm like, yay, I'm finally not the only African. But then on the flip side, I was around a lot of white people and I was not used to that either because I grew up in a very diverse school. And then I was living in the dorms and I was like, these white people barefoot walking around the dorms, <laughs> you know, got their straight. <laughs> and it's, it's like things like you don't even, you don't think about, or even just like cleanliness, you know, how, how, how I was raised with how I'm supposed to be clean and have my room kind of set up and everything in that regards. Um, fortunately, my roommate was Ghanaian, so we were very um, similar in culture. But then when we, we kind of were like isolated in comparison to all the other people that lived in our dorms because we were like the only on our floors, the only black females, African females. So then we started noticing that we do things a certain way, but these other people don't. And Mm. it was a culture shock. It was just like, oh, you don't shower every day? Okay. (laughs) Oh, you're barefoot in the hallway. Okay. Oh, you're not like, brush your teeth, go to class, just little things like you don't really pay attention to because you've been raised to do this certain way and then you start noticing people do it differently. You're just like, oh, okay, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I can definitely um, echo both of y'all's experiences. So um, all throughout like elementary, middle, high school, I went to predominantly white schools. So coming to NC State, that in itself was not a culture shock because like that's how I was raised, like, that's the environment I was raised in. Um, but I will say, when I went to the first AS- African Student Union meeting, and I was surrounded by a bunch of Africans, like, I don't know, I don't know if I've ever felt that much euphoria, bliss in my life. Um, like, we had jello fries, we had, like, all these dishes, and it was just 
I don't know. I've never experienced anything like that before um, in my previous years. Um, but then, like, kind of like what you were saying, like, as soon as I left the meeting and I went to my first class, it was like, okay, I'm the only black girl in my class again. So it was kind of just back to business as usual. Mm-hmm. I think I have a question. Mm-hmm, good. Um, I'm hearing a lot of you talk about, you know, experiencing um, in the, sorry, in the residence halls, student orgs, but what has that culture shot looked like in the classroom? Ooh, okay, I can definitely speak on this because my major is business administration. Mm. And not only that, I'm concentrating in finance. Now, finance is a very white, male-driven, dominated mm. industry. Like, all those stockbrokers, all those... Wolf of bankers, Wall Street. Yeah, Wolf of Wall Street. They're all white men. You can see in the movies, you can see at the job. It's just all white men. Not even just, like, there's not even that many white women stuck in there. There's mostly white men. So coming to like one of my first finance classes, I really was expecting at least one other person. Like one black person. Doesn't have to be a black girl, just a black dude, someone. And I was the only one. And then there was very few white girls as well. Just like females I could talk to. And it was just like I'm literally the only one here. (laughs) Like How'd that even happen? That really made me, like, even question, do I even want to do finance? Like, am am I even allowed to like finance? Because Mm -hmm. I'm literally the only one here. Why am I the only one here? Um, It was really weird in the classroom. And then being, especially in a white male-dominated industry, you don't get really the chance to speak up. Like, I don't get the chance in class to answer questions because I'm never picked, even if I raise my hand. Um, The teacher is a white male. Um, I just don't bother going to his office hours because I'm not even sure if he's really equipped to help me if I ask certain questions or if I need certain kinds of assistance. I have to operate completely by myself. I had to learn by myself. I had to teach myself these kind of things because I don't feel like I'm supported in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely had a very similar experience because um, a lot of people in my major, they're concentrated on wood products and that is also a white male driven area and so I just remember like in my earlier years I guess my my underclassmen years um we would have people come in to talk about their internships that they got um and the jobs they wanted to do and it was just white man after white man after white man after white man and I was just sitting in the class and again I'm I'm the only black girl in my class already And then seeing these people who have graduated from my major or are soon to have graduated from my major and just sitting there thinking like, wow, like, am I in the right place? Um, Is this major for me? Like, why am I doing this? Just a lot of self-doubt because of Mm -hmm. that. Um, So it took a while for me to be comfortable in my major, I'll say. Um, It took a lot of talking to, luckily I do have some girls in my major, um, and just kind of asking them, oh, like, what do you guys or what do y'all want to do? Um, when you graduate, what do you, what does your perspective outlook look like? Um, and also, luckily, um, I got a mentor, and he was actually a black man who gra- graduated from my major, and that just helped me gain some clarity as well. That okay, I am in the right right place. I don't have to go into lumber. I don't have to work at a lumber yard. Um, like I can actually do this. So that was yeah. It was also a struggle for me. Mm. Yeah, I think. My experience is a little different in grad school 
echoing the same thing that both ladies have mentioned regarding like feeling like you you picked a field that is predominantly white. So I am a PhD student in school psychology, and the field is about 80, 82-ish percent white female, right? So my cohort and the people I have class with, 90% of them are white females. And so what it started feeling like is when we're in class and we're learning about all these, you know, intelligent assessments, all these work we're doing with kids in the school settings, public school settings, where the majority of the population of the students they work with are black or minority students, feeling like I constantly had to be like the spokesperson for them, right? So it was always mm -hmm. when we're being taught something, then I had to be the one that started thinking about biases or cultural differences and then bringing it up to the professor. Like, mm -hmm. hey, yeah, this might sound right for white people, but did they do this study on other populations? Did they do this study on black stu students? How does it work with black students? And it's exhausting when you constantly feel like you have to be continuously thinking about your identity and how that is going to impact what you're trying to do and also feeling like you constantly have to advocate for your identity to be given equity and something that is so as crucial as education right so we all get education we're all in schools we're all required to go to school by law yeah. and so just thinking about the fact that the people who are serving us are so oblivious to thinking about identity and being black or how cultural or race is going to impact how you work with children or how they perceive things or how it's going to be different is still so mind-blowing to me but really i feel like that's like what fuels me to continue this field so really and truly wanting to see more black folks in school psychology because we need more representation we need more people who understand what we've gone through. We need more people who understand family dynamics. It's not your traditional mom and dad, you know, middle-class white picket fence type of, you know, assumptions. So it's just been really more so like, I can't leave because if I leave, then I'm just gonna leave it to these white people to keep doing this. Then this is not, then we're just gonna take two, 200 steps back, right? So really just feeling like I need to stay in order to feel like we're continuously making that progress to achieving that equity and that multicultural competency and just consciousness when we're working with the population that we work with in school systems. You know, Rancy, I really resonated with what you said about I can't ask questions or I can't, I don't get chosen to answer um, because it just brought back a memory of me um, and how, like, it's just classroom etiquette. Um, I was raised by, so my mom's a bit older, and so she raised me with classroom etiquette of when she was in school in, in Ethiopia. And so it was very much so you don't challenge a teacher in, in the classroom. So I would always go to office hours. And so, again, I was a history major, which is also a, a predominantly white male uh, place because you know that that saying the uh, history is written by the victors mm -hmm. it should be changed to history is written by the white man <laughs> like that's really what it is um so I would never ask questions in class because you don't challenge a teacher you don't do that in the classroom so I would go to office hours until one day I had this professor he just blew up on me and he was like why don't you ask these questions in class that's what it's there for 
my um, office hours is for more in-depth questions. The questions you're asking would benefit the whole classroom to hear. And I just looked at him like, oh my God, <laughs> why am I being reprimanded for, you know, respecting your seniority and not at, not and, and saying that your lesson planning is insufficient, you know? Um, and I just couldn't believe it. And I was just like, oh, I guess this is like a cultural difference. And there's a lot of things that is just expected in white culture. White culture says you can ask a teacher at any moment, any time, raise your hand and be like, well, I thought you can do that in white culture, but in, you know, whether it's the Caribbean or Africa, you don't do that to a teacher. You wait till they're, it's in a place where you're not seen as challenging authority or you're not challenging a fact that's coming from someone who's done this longer than you and you, you ask then. Um, so it's funny how your answer, I was like, I felt that ages ago. It's still the same. Like that classroom etiquette of uh, like, yeah. Yeah, and also you just brought up a good point that I just thought of, you don't complain, right? Yeah. So if your teacher's giving you too much assignments or work that's unfeasible for you to do in that time span, you suck it up and you do it. Mm -hmm. So it was always really like, whoa, when like my white cohort, um, they're advocating for themselves, they're speaking up, you know, they're talking about, oh, this is too much work. I can't do this because I have X, Y, and Z. And I'm thinking like, bro, I have like 10 times more work than you have to do. And I want to complain too, but I'm just going to keep quiet because I was raised to shut up and just do the work, right? So then you start finding yourself being burnt out and overworked and underappreciated because you were raised to just take it. Whereas you see your white counterparts kind of advocating for themselves and being able to speak up and say, yeah, this is not realistic for us to achieve at this time. I have a child. I have other prior engagements. I have X, Y, and Z responsibilities. And so on the flip side, that actually helps me kind of start realizing that I need to start advocating for myself a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. I really do need to start speaking up if I'm feeling overworked this week or I have extra work that I need to do this week and a teacher is asking us to write a 20-page paper in, in, a, in a week, that's not realistic. And I'm not complaining because I'm saying that I'm just being mindful of my responsibilities and being able to advocate for myself. So you sometimes you pick up on good habits too. Yeah. Mm. That was a good point. That was yeah. a really good point. Yeah. Um, so what level of like parental support or involvement is there in your higher education? Um, and let me preface this, um, why I'm asking this, because, you know, I used to say to my, um, in undergrad, I used to say it all the time, like, oh, you know, it's just me in this degree. Oh, you know, my parents have no say. And it clicked in my head once I started seeing the level of parental involvement in their degree that they weren't understanding what I was saying. A lot of my higher education was me figuring everything out, figuring out the American school system, figuring out every little detail. So when I was saying it's just me. I literally meant that I had no support system in like the fine intricacies of higher education. And I had no, um, no one to, like Helen said, um, help me figure out a way to advocate for myself. 
Um, I had no one to um, talk with about all these little different things. Um, and so once I started asking around other people, I was like, oh, hmm, okay. You know, like, I, like, fa I famously tell people what my mom said to me when I got into school and I was going to live on campus. She gave me two things. You're there for a degree, so come home with a degree. And don't do anything that will embarrass me. Those were the two things my mom said to me. That's it. Right here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's it. And people don't believe me, you know? They're like, what? You know, so I want to um, see into that. Is that like, um, you know, you know, maybe I've bared too much and it's not immigrant experience. It's just me. Um, but like, you know, um, what is the level of, you know, parental involvement in your higher education? How does that how does that show up compared to your white counterparts? Definitely echoing what you said. Um, other than my, my mom knowing when the bursa bill was due. Now now they don't even know what I'm doing. So I'm in grad school now. My parents, I can't, they can't even explain what a school psychologist is. But when I was an undergrad, it was to pay the bills. And um, that was as that was about it. My parents didn't go to um, college in the US, so they didn't know, even though I had three older brothers who'd gone before me and done the process, it was still very much like fend for yourself and figure it out on your own. And just as long as you're making the dean's list and you're getting good grades, that's all they cared about. And then my mom's favorite line is, remember the child of who you are. That's it. That was her favorite line. So I'm not supposed to be going out partying, drinking, all of that stuff. My parents even think that was a thing in college. It was you're going to school for school. And they didn't help with, you know, helping me navigate, like if I need to change my major or if I'm experiencing, you know, injustice with my professor or learning how to advocate for myself, even very little things like, like add drop periods or things like that. So right now I work in the Dean's office and I'm an advisor and it's just astonishing how many times I get emails or calls from parents, you know? So really parents who know what their kids are supposed to be getting or like if their child has um, accommodations, how to help them navigate that if their child has had a learning disability in high school or something. Or like my child wants to switch their majors, like can you help them coda into it? Things that my parents had no idea about. My white counterparts, they know it. They, their parents are on it. They're like, a lot of them are helicopter parents, but they know what needs to be done to help their child succeed. They have connections with helping their child get internships and things like that, opportunities that I had to navigate on my own. I didn't even know that it was necessary for me as a psychology major to do an internship you know things that I'm not I wasn't thinking about because I wasn't given that that resource I'm seeing my 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 counterparts they, they had it lined up for them already mom and dad already had connections they know who to email to ask for that information studying abroad they already had money put aside for that so all those privileges that you you miss out on when you're you grew up in a different country and your parents had a different education, have different expectations. Mm -hmm. um, I would just say that I think my parents do what they can. Um, like they didn't, I'm like a first generation student. So it's like applying to colleges. Like my sister came before me. So it was more so I think her helping me navigate things more than my parents, just because they don't know. Um, 
And like, for example, you just mentioned study abroad. I remember when I wanted to study abroad, it's something I knew I wanted to do in high school. But when I got to college, it wasn't my parents saying, hey, do you want to study abroad? It was more me taking the initiative to go to the study abroad fair and look at programs on my own. And then once I finally did pick a place, it was kind of just like, oh, hey, y'all, I want to go to Australia. Um, these are the dates and everything. And that was kind of that. Like, they didn't really have much um, involvement in that process. Um, and also, like, just with registering for classes, internships, um, they don't really help with that either, just because I don't think they have their background to help me with things like that. Whereas some of my other counterparts, white counterparts, it's like um, their parents know someone who knows someone, and so they get connected like that. Whereas with me, I don't really have that privilege. Um, so I definitely think they try to help where they can, um, but even sometimes I'll call my mom, like, oh, mom, like, why don't you call me? And she's like, well, I mean, I know you're busy. It's always, oh, I know you're busy. Um, so I think, like, they're also just kind of afraid of overstepping. Like, every time you're like, oh, like, you know, you're almost done with school. And it's like, I know school is not the only thing that stresses me. But it's like when it comes to, like, um, mental health and other things like that, they don't really understand. So they can't really help me navigate that either. Um, but it all just comes from a place of, they, they know what they know. They do what they can. Honestly speaking, Helen, the parent you're describing sounds amazing. Um, on, it was for me, I also have an older sister who went to college before me. She's three years older than me, so every question I have about college campus, college life, who to talk to, it has gone to her. Now, my parents, my parents are, you know, they do concern themselves with my education, but they, I don't think my parents have ever touched a computer. Um, I don't think they ever will. Like, I've given them access to my grades, access to my classes. They don't bother to look. They don't bother to even check. They expect me to just get my grades and to, and to be like that. Um, I wish that they would do a little bit more to help me um, and maybe turn to academic because I am on scholarship. I've made sure that I don't cost a single cent or dime. Um, so, you know, maybe a little bit of... A little bit, you know, more talking would maybe help a little bit. Mm. Yeah, they do call me. My parents actually live pretty close by, so I, I go home often. Um, but they don't actually ask about my academic life. They're just, okay, what's your grade? Okay, that's good. What would you get on the last test? That's good. Okay, that's it. So, um, overall, what is the most surprising thing about NCSU as the child of an immigrant for you guys? I would say the food. <laughs> okay, so, so, okay, so food is very important to me. Mm -hmm. um, food is very important to me. <laughs> and coming to NC State, I was like, okay, first of all, I went to, I went on a couple different college tours. My first college tour was UNCG. Um, and if you don't know, because you're not from NC or whatever, UNCG, I think, is actually considered to have the best college food. Um, and that was the first college I went to. So from every yeah, other college. Where? In, in North Carolina? Maybe in just the UNC system. Okay, I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> just in the UNC system. Because that's where my mom, my parents wanted me to stay in the UNC system. Um, but they are considered to have the best. And every school I visited from there was like kind of downhill. Um, so coming to NC State, I think my, my friends realized, Rance, you complain a lot. And I'm like... I don't complain about things that don't need to be complained about. 
the food is bad. <laughs> the food is really bad. Um, that's really important to me. And I was astonished because I, my roommate and my white friends would be like, oh, the food is great. I'm like, who, what were you eating <laughs> like before this? What, what were you eating? Because I really care about the food and I don't think the food here is that good. The rice no, is terrible. Honestly. <laughs> You're like, I'm, I'm going to let them know. Put them right. on blast. Yeah. <laughs> I've been here for five years. I still haven't had campus food. So I, thanks for saving me. So now <laughs> I'm definitely not going to try it because food's important to me too. Definitely. Um, I think for me, coming from being a graduate student, one of the things that is still a really shock factor to me is how little people know about Africa. Like, it's mm. like mind-blowing how not like people everyday people but like professors with phds you know intellects know so little about such a big continent and can't even tell you where you know nigeria is in africa or where kenya is in africa just very little things like that i'm like I'm not European, I'm not white, but I could tell you where Yugoslavia is, I could tell you where France is, I could tell you where these countries are in Europe. So I take the time to educate myself on other parts of the world. I know what countries in Asia are, but it's just really mind boggling that folks really know so little about Africa and are so disinterested in learning about it. And so my dessert, my um, my research right now really is honing in specifically at the continent of Africa, and when I'm when I talk to my committee members or I talk to other individuals within the department about my research, it's like a unicorn. It's like an anomaly to them. They're so shocked, and and it just speaks volume to just. The sheer ignorance in the world that we live in but really that for me was big because i'm coming from a place up north where people are very much more cognizant of that i guess i grew up with people who are more mindful of that who were probably exposed to that more so they were given that opportunity to learn more about africa but here it's like people will be like where's nigeria and i'm just like okay <laughs> yeah that's a good point um Without naming the class, there is a class here at NC State. And um, before I took it, my friends took it this semester before me. And basically, the class is, like, on African history. Um, I just remember my friends were like, ooh, you're taking that class with that professor? And I was like, yo, like, what's up? Like, um, and they were saying that basically the, t the class was taught by a white woman. And she was talking about something in the class. And then there's a bunch of Africans in the class. They started arguing with the teacher, saying, no, that's not right. And the teacher was arguing with her, them, like, no, this is right. And it's like, how are you going to argue with us about our own history? Mm -hmm. um, so I will say that ignorance was surprising because, like, I knew I was coming to a PWI, but if you're a professor, I expect you to, like, have a good idea, a good grasp on at least the class you're teaching and the fact that even at that level, people were still ignorant on African history, it was just a little shocking. Mm. I, I will echo that a little bit. Um, there is this mythical Africa in the minds yeah. of a lot of the uh, people who hold PhDs on this campus. And it is shocking to see. Um, when I was asked 
did I convert to Islam upon coming to America? Um, it made me pause and go, what? And so I thought, maybe you don't know. And so I thought, because if you're African, when I say this, you'll immediately get it. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm from East Africa, the Horn of Africa. And if you're from Africa, you immediately click like, oh, that's literally where Islam was introduced. And they still don't get it. And then I say again, I'm from Ethiopia. And then you, you hope that they get it then. Like that is, is a very big country in, in Islamic history. And you, you hope. And then you're like, oh, so I'm not even just dealing with ignorance of Africa. I'm dealing with double ignorance of just a major world religion. And it's so shocking. Um, and so then I think to myself, do I have time to explain to someone hundreds of thousands of years of history just to let them understand that that assumption that um, major world religions don't exist outside of America <laughs> or don't exist and all Africans are either Christian or indigenous religions doesn't really flow, especially in a country with as, as old a history as Ethiopia. Um, and so it, it was a very shocking interaction I had with someone on this campus that it just made me pause. And I was like, oh, 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 no. Like, I can't believe that I was just asked this. And, like, you know, you think about it like a grown adult just asked me this question, you know. Um, so, yeah, I will very much say that uh, I can echo all of you ladies that there is a... Um, and it's funny because I, will, I was talking about with one of them about like, you know, oh, I'm trying to push more um, African diaspora kind of thing. And I casually mentioned the Caribbean and it's almost like they only think of the Caribbean as a vacation spot. And there's no history and, and all of these things like, it's like, what do you mean you don't know all of this kind of a thing? So it, I, I do have to agree that there's a certain level of the ivory tower is even more ivory here. <laughs> um. I was going to also ask a question. So when you think about how you had to build community here at NC State, because this is where you, you chose to spend the next four, five, six, seven, however long years of your life at, like what were those, those people, those groups, those student orgs, those offices that like really helped you settle and find home here at NC State? I can start. Um. So yeah, when I first came to NC State, it was so important to me to just find people that looked like me, um, just because that's something I've been lacking like throughout high school, middle school, all that. Um, so I really want to give a shout out to ASU, African Student Union. Um, that is where I met all of my best, well, not all of them, but a lot of my really close friends. Um, also MSA, the Multicultural Student Association, um, just going in there in between classes, talking to people. I met so many people. It just helped me um, feel more connected um, to people that look like me. So I really, um, those spaces really helped me to start building community here at NC State. Yeah, for me, um, actually at Symposium, I was looking for a work study opportunity and the AACC, the African American Cultural Center, announced they had some open positions. So I went and I applied, um, spoke down, had a interview right there and they told me like a week or two later that I got the job and that really being at the African American Culture Center all through my years of school here has really allowed me to make black friends meet black people meet people of different cultures just 
releads in the AACC. Shout out to AACC. I'm sorry, <laughs> shameless plug. We live, we out here. <laughs> what about you, Alan? Um, just full transparency is something I'm still struggling with. Um, I hate North Carolina. <laughs> 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 I'm just gonna say it and be very honest. I am not in North Carolina if I don't have to be, meaning if I'm not working, I'm not here. I am either back in Boston or somewhere where my friends are. I lucked out that I was able to meet a few Black females who are also part of our PhD program, and those have been my support system. And then like church or things outside of campus, but for the most part, I've done a pretty awful job making connections with um, folks on campus just because I feel like I'm here for for grad school. I'm trying to get in, get out, finish my research, spend like spend as minimal time with people I don't have to, <laughs> and um, just be around. I have enough. I feel like I have enough friends. I feel like I'm too old to try to feel like I need to make new friends, especially if I don't see myself building a relationship with them. If I'm not going to be here long enough, and that's bad as a psychologist. Obviously, I know that's not realistic. And I've been trying as of recently, now that I'm about to be out the door, you know, I decided to be part of the Black um, Black Student Graduate Association and I, I will sprinkle myself at the events when I'm in North Carolina. But for the most part, I just, I go back home. <laughs> I, I also have one more question. And I, um, I don't know if we have any more after this. Yeah, I don't think so either. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know because these are conversations that we're having in the AACC when we think about um, people who identify as African American. Um, but the 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 desire and the longing to understand our roots um, because African American people are, are descendants of Africa. That's just what it is. But so many people are not connected to their roots. And I've been having this conversation with our students in, inside the AACC space, um, and I'm trying to instill in them while also me learning myself the importance of knowing your roots. So um, through your perspective, what is the, why do you think it's so important for people who even identify as African-American to know where their roots are, know where their roots um, come from? Um, I can say that this is something me and my sister talk about a lot. So my dad's family is from uh, Sierra Leone and my mom's family is American. And so it's like, Unless I marry someone who is African, it's kind of like, how will I be able to connect with my culture? Because um, I don't really speak Creole. Like, I, I can understand it. I feel like it sounds weird when I say it, so I don't really try to speak it. Um, I don't know how to cook any traditional dishes. Um, I have, like, traditional clothing, but I don't really have that many events to go to to wear it. Um, so it's kind of just like... I feel like I'm always trying to connect with my culture just because I don't want to lose it um, because I am African-American. Like my dad's family is from uh, Sierra Leone and I've been there. I've seen the I've seen the country um, and I just don't want to lose that part of me. And then my kids, I don't want them to lose that part of them either. Um, so I think that's kind of why it's important just because, I mean, I don't want it to end with me, basically. Mm. Yeah, I think I would definitely have to um, echo that. But another point that I think is really important is I feel like there has been a push for more Black folks to learn their culture and really get connected to their roots. 
because for the longest time, at least when I was growing up, it was always like Africans against African-Americans, right? Mm-hmm. So it was always like Speak one on feels it. like they're better than the other or society has kind of pinned us against each other. Speak and it has always been from the majority's um, kind of like exploitation of us just to put it out plain and simple. And so it's really rewarding and refreshing to see that we're starting to come together and really embrace our our histories whether it's the negative or the positive or all of that and really just seeing people's genuine interest in really learning where they come from and i think because of that we're building more power and more confidence in ourselves and really really understanding like the magnitude of change that we can have because we're really learning more about who we are as a group of people. And I feel like that's going to initiate some amazing change. It's going to change the world. It's going to do a whole 180 on how we are perceived and how we, you know, make changes and how we thrive in this country. And so it's just really nice to see that people are really ready to just learn about the history that we weren't taught, right? They mm-hmm. black folks aren't really taught to to know about their roots or want to learn about where they're from. That's been suppressed for so long, and so it's just really nice for folks to really just want to learn more about themselves. And it, it brings that connection. It makes you feel like there's that sense of purpose and being, knowing that you're more than just someone that was picked up from some part of Africa mm-hmm. and brought to this foreign country to be misused and abused and exploited by white people right so it's nice to know that there's more to us than that yeah mm. totally agree um just if i don't have my culture what do i have mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i think that was the word if i don't have my culture then what do i have if i don't have my culture then what do i have i can i can definitely echo all of that um just from my perspective um as someone in the AACC as staff, what I will say is why is it so important for everyone to know their roots is these roots were so important and so strong that someone tried to rip them from you. Mm -hmm. So know that that has power. Know that, that the place we all have is in Africa. At the, uh, start of, uh, at the start of everything, it was in Africa. We have created new places of home, of course. And so we have roots here, and whether it's in Latin America, whether it's in the Caribbean, whether it's in the United States, Canada, Europe, we have roots there now as well. But from where we all are, it is in Africa. Um, and I, I always tell people, you know, no matter how slighted Africa has been, we've still been everyone's breadbasket. We've still been everyone's um, materials, you know, um, everything. The, the world would not exist without Africa. Um, the world would not be connected without Africa. Um, and so that is the strength of our roots. And to know it is to, um, is to know oneself, you know. Mm. To get lost is to find your way. We, we've we been lost, so now we're finding our way. That reminds me of Naeem Akbar's Know Yourself. Yeah. Know Yourself. No, no, it's definitely, definitely pulling from him. Um, so, you know, we've been, you know, like, because that's a Swahili proverb, to get lost is, um, to get lost is to find oneself. 
Um, and I definitely believe that we have been lost. And what we have found is that we are resilient. We do, we are so creative. We so make, creative. yes, so creative. We make, where, where others see um, an end, we make, you know? Um, I always tell people, you know, without Africans knowing that, oh, all of these leftover things from um, sugar canes, we're going to make molasses out of it. Oh, all of these leftovers from molasses, we're going to make rum out of it. Without Africans, all of the things people enjoy wouldn't exist, mm. you know? Um, so, I, and I think that's the thing. These were leftovers. People didn't know what to do with it. And we were like, let's create more. Like, where, where people see an end, we see a new beginning. And so I, that's why I say to people, it's very important to know your roots because the roots are still strong. No matter how many times people try and slander Africa, we're still strong. We're still there. So come back, explore all 54 countries, see us, enjoy it, you know? <laughs> um, but I want to thank all of these wonderful ladies for coming to our show, to our beautiful podcast. Um, and Isaiah, could you give us a little preview of what the next podcast is going to be about? Oh, I sure can. So our next podcast episode is Welcome Black. And we're going to be talking to some of our black alumni to really captivate what does it mean to be a black alumni of a predominantly and historically white institution? How is the experience, how has the black experience evolved and changed since your time on campus till now? Uh, we're going to be featuring some dope alum who have done some great work in our communities. Um, so I'm so looking forward to it. And I just want to thank you all for listening to this podcast episode today. Black folks listening, please know that you are loved, you are beautiful, you are bold, you are necessary, you are enough. And we thank you for listening to our podcast. And until next time, we love you and we will see you then. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This is great.